for one sake. Father, have mercy on us according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions, wash away all our iniquities, and cleanse us from our sins, for we know our transgressions, and our sin is always before us. Cleanse us, create new and pure hearts within us, O God. Renew steadfast spirits within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, that we may teach transgressors your ways. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Why don't you open back up to 1 Samuel uh, 11 and 12. Uh, we're going to fly through these uh, two chapters tonight, and they are one unit together. Um, I think one of the key things that we need to grasp from this passage is quite simply this. It is a great evil to reject God as king. A great evil. That's Samuel's own testimony and Israel's own admission in chapter 12 and really serves to unlock the whole meaning of these two chapters. And that's a strong statement. I mean, evil might be a bit, might sound a bit OTT to you. We tend to reserve the word evil for some of the most heinous acts, the kind of things that get people put in prison and so on. But evil is simply, uh, in biblical terms, a moral deficiency in a person that inclines them, makes them want to do what is contrary to the will of God. And so that kind of broadens the people who fall under the scope of the term evil. Uh, I mean, what constitutes evil? Consider some of these scenarios. Uh, so Janice's parents have told her to delete TikTok. She's only 14, but she's watching stuff she shouldn't be watching. She tells her parents that she has deleted it, uh, but she hasn't. They're not tech savvy enough to check. Now, if God's will is that she honors her father and mother and she doesn't, then what is it? Or Archie. Archie met a girl at uni and started dating her. Uh, she's not a Christian. And while Archie hoped that he'd bring her to church, actually the opposite has happened. He hasn't been seen in months. And he's rejecting the calls of every good friend from the church that is reaching out to him in loving concern. If it is God's will that he should not be yoked together with an unbeliever and to abstain from sexual immorality, then, well, what is it? Maya is a working mum. She doesn't get much help from her husband at home. And the stress really gets to her so that she drinks too much gin and shouts angrily at her kids. If it is God's will that she is gentle and sober-minded, not given to drunkenness, what is her behavior? Well, these are just a few examples of, kind of everyday evil behavior in people who reject God as king. And one of the major problems that we find with anyone who rejects God as king is that they just regress more and more, particularly even when crisis comes. You see, whenever crisis comes to any one of us, no matter what age or stage or background or whatever we are, 
we automatically look for help. We look for rescue. We look for salvation. But we tend to look for salvation in all the wrong places. And that's what's happening in this text. In recent forays into 1 Samuel, we've seen, for example, in chapter 8, verse 7, that Israel had rejected God as their king. That's what he was to them. God has given them what they want, a king, even though it is an evil request. He's, and he's not doing it because he's kind of bowing to their will or he's some kind of weak God. But it's because he's going to do what he's done many times before, even in Israel's history. He's going to turn something evil into something good. Now Saul is the new king that the people are looking to. And at first sight in chapter 11, he's a good choice. You know, he leads the people here in a battle against an enemy and wins. And everybody rejoices, yeah, let's make him king again. And we're tempted to think, well, that's wonderful. Look at that. Yeah, just like Jesus, the king who fights on our behalf. But slow down with that. Because when you read chapter 12, which this passage flows right into, it's the same event that's being described Chapter 12 is a lens in the whole episode and the rejection of God and the longing for a king. Even the victory, it's not celebrated. It's condemned by Samuel in no uncertain terms. They're having a great celebration. Samuel is the, I think he wins the award for the greatest party pooper of all time. He sees the evil Israel has committed and cannot bear it. And so he speaks out. So let's go through these two chapters and follow the train of thought. Uh, I've tried to condense chapter 11 into one sentence and chapter 12 into one sentence. And here's what the two points will be. One, don't look for salvation in all the wrong places. And two, the Lord is your salvation and unbelievably gracious. Let's walk through it. First of all, don't look for salvation in all the wrong places. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11, you've got God's people crying out for salvation, for rescue, as rescue is the word repeated in verse 3, 9, and 13. Nahash, the Ammonite, laid siege to the city of Jabesh-Gilead, and all the people there are petrified. They're all going to die. Now, they should have at this point done what Israel, God's people, have done many times before. They should have cried out to God, save us, help us. No prayer here, though. They don't. Verse 1 actually says they cry out first to Nahash for their salvation. Save us by enslaving us is essentially their cry. Nahash responds with, sure, I'll accept that. I'll save you, but only if I get to gouge out everyone's right eye and bring disgrace on you all. Well, clearly they don't like the sound of that. So they cry out again. Surely to God this time? No. They, verse 3, cry out to the people of Israel. Actually in the hope that their new king Saul will come and rescue them. That's what Samuel discloses to us in chapter 12, verse 12. So ultimately, they're crying out first to the evil king who's going to kill them, and then to this other king who's not their real king. They're choosing to hope in the deliverance of a human being over the almighty God who has proved himself a billion times before to them. Now, we might say that's absolutely crazy because God has done this many times before and from worse situations than this. Have they forgotten who God is? Well, the answer to that really is yes, but... I don't think we can be too judgmental, can we? I mean, don't we do the same? 
don't we, in a crisis or in some kind of difficulty, have a little bit of a freak out before we remember to pray? If we do at all. I mean, we've been saved from sin through faith in the crucified King, Jesus, who, according to God's word, is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, in whose hand is power that you cannot even imagine. Sway unmatched in this world. But when we're besieged by the devil's lies, struggling with sin, pressurized by people at work or at school, suffering shame, anxious about the future, weighed down by debt, in some kind of need or crisis, what do we do? Just what the people of Jabesh Gilead did. We look for salvation in all the wrong places. That's why people drink too much. That's why people gamble to try and get themselves out of debt or even out of a lifestyle that they're in. It's why people look to things like relationships and box sets and all manner of things for deliverance, peace. And like Israel, we might think, well, we found a solution. But this passage, 11 and 12, disclose in no uncertain, in no uncertain terms, these are idols. And turning to any of them instead of the one true king is a very great evil. The good news is that God saves us all the time, even when we don't deserve it. And even when we don't see it, that's what he did on this very occasion. As we see in verses 4 to 11, God's people are actually rescued in this scenario, not delivered over to their enemies. But the question here is, who is the rescuer? Where does responsibility for their salvation lie? Well, at first glance, it looks like King Saul. I mean, when he hears the news from Jabesh's messengers, he burns with anger, musters a huge army, and promises salvation. Verse 9, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, I'm imagining Saul with a deep voice, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. And when the victory is won, the army of Israel praised Saul. What did they do? Verse 12, they actually called for the blood of his doubters. There were a few worthless men they're called at the end of chapter 10. Who are, like, who are, I'm not sure this guy is actually going to be anything. And verse 12 says, who was it who asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn them over to us, Samuel, so we can put them to death. But that's mistaken. Because it's not actually Saul's victory. It's God's. Look at verse 6. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. That's what explains the victory. I mean, how else could Saul, who, as we saw last week, was so useless he couldn't even find his daddy's donkeys, who was so afraid at his own coronation ceremony at the end of chapter 10 that he, the biggest man in Israel, was hiding behind some suitcases next to a luggage carousel. Well, there wasn't actually a luggage carousel. But how else could he turn into this, well, really in this passage, he's like Samson, he's a super judge. How else could he turn into this judge and trounce the Ammonites? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit who filled him and worked through him. Sure, Saul is the human agent, but truly the Lord is Israel's salvation. Now that's what Israel missed as they celebrated this sweeping victory over Nahash. You see in verses 12 to 15, God's people are crediting Saul with their salvation 
And I think the heading over the NIV is wrong. Saul confirmed as king. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, those bold bits over the top of these passages, they're not in the original text. Okay? So it's not wrong for me to say that's wrong. Okay? I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. But God's people credit Saul with their salvation. Even though spirit-filled Saul himself declared in verse 13, this day the Lord has rescued Israel. And this is what happens when your heart is inclined to reject God. You not only look for salvation in other things, but you credit those other things that you've looked to with some kind of God-like power. Convincing yourself that it will be good to turn to them again in the future. But listen, salvation came to God's people back then, not because Israel had a king, but because Israel's king was filled with the Spirit of God. On that day, Jabesh's, Jabesh Gilead's salvation, the Lord got no credit, and Samuel could not stand it. It was wrong. And that's why in verse 14, Samuel actually invites everyone to head to Gilgal to renew the kingship, or kingship could easily be translated in verse 14, the kingdom. But I want you to notice this with me. It's not Saul's kingdom that's been renewed here. It's God's. Uh, the people think, the people of Israel think it's Saul's kingdom. Verse 15 says the people make Saul king at Gilgal and have a big party, even making sacrifices to the Lord. But Saul has actually already been privately and publicly anointed as king. So there's no actual need for a renewal. It's just happened. But there is a need for the people to renew their allegiance to God because they have strayed. They are being disobedient. They are committing a great evil by rejecting the Lord their God as king. And that's what chapter 12 is all about. How do we know? Two reasons. One, Saul isn't named in chapter 12. He's only made reference to as the anointed, you're anointed, the Lord's anointed, in ways that line him up alongside every other Israelite needing to recommit in their allegiance to God. Secondly, the location of this renewal. Ash was right to point out last week that geography in this book is extremely important. And Gilgal's another one of those places where you've got to think through, right, Gilgal, what's that famous for? What's happened there before? And Gilgal is the place where Israel was led by Joshua to renew the covenant with God after crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Cross the Jordan. Where'd you go? Gilgal. What do you do? Circumcise all the men. Uh, celebrate the Passover. Praise God. We're a people in the land that he's promised us. <sighs> Proper party. Okay? No party poopers on that day. Because that was the right thing to do. Renew the covenant. So Samuel leads Israel just miles away from where they fought this battle. Absolutely miles away. But Samuel leads them to Gilgal to get them to see their great evil and to renew their commitment to God, the one true king. And this is point two. The Lord is your salvation. And unbelievably gracious. Now in verses 1 to 19, we find God's people confronted by their sin. That's the first thing that Samuel does with them. And he does it in two ways, right? First of all, in verses 1 to 5, Samuel gets them to admit that their desire for a king to rule over them is nothing to do with some kind of faulty leadership on Samuel's behalf. He's been a top-notch leader. 
Hey, Israel, you asked for a king, and I gave you a king. Now he's your leader. He's stating fact at the start of chapter 12. And he's pointing out that now, actually, this is a change of the guard. He's the last judge. But this is the new age of the king. But he goes on to say, Israel, I've led you for decades, ever since I was really young. We looked at that at the start of our series. How have I led you? Have I been like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, those wicked and worthless sons? Or have I led you well? What's it been like? Have I mistreated you, manipulated you? Why don't you call out any witnesses who've got anything bad to say about me? Check the transcripts, play back all the CCTV. Uh, you know, have I played you in any way? No, they say. You are, no, you're definitely not. They admit there's no deficiency in his own leadership. And there was nothing, therefore, that prompted Israel's longing for a king in Samuel. That means that their request for a king in place of God as king was solely on them. Okay? Then in verses 6 to 12, Samuel then turns almost from a kind of defendant in the dock to being the prosecutor. Israel's now in the dock. And he says, he shows them then the evil they've done. Verse 7. Stand here. You could translate that, stand still. Now stop all your partying. Okay? Because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. What evidence is he talking about? That they failed to cry out to God as Israel has done in the past. Let me explain. Throughout Israel's history, there has been a very obvious pattern Ever since the Exodus, the pattern has been crisis, cry, rescue, commitment. Okay? I really wish there was a C for commitment, uh, for rescue, sorry, that's annoying me. But crisis, cry, rescue, commitment. Okay? Now, that's the pattern. Crisis. The crises usually involved some kind of opposition or oppression from people outside them. Like Pharaoh and Egypt on the people, right? The cries that came out in response to that for deliverance and salvation were directed to God. Who heard and who answered. Like he said at the Exodus, when he called Moses to go to his people and go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, I have heard my people's cry, is what he said. Now, sometimes the people cried out in fear because the, their enemies were terrifying and their misery was complete. But at other times, they cried out in repentance. Like you see in verse 10, they said, we have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. That's when they were rescued by the Lord through the leaders that he appointed. He sent people. Like Moses, like Aaron, like Jeroboam, like the, the judges that are mentioned here in the text. And having been delivered through the leader that God sent, they committed themselves to serving the Lord. We fear you. We're going to serve you. But what Samuel is, so you see that? That's been the pattern. Crisis, cry, rescue, commitment. But there's a break in the pattern here. Look with me, verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, there's the crisis, you said to me, no, Lord, no, we want a king to rule over us. Even though the Lord your God was your king, Samuel says. See what's happened? Crisis, yes, but no cry went up to God. 
No call to the God who had saved them in the most incredible ways in the past. No, this time they wanted a different deliverer. This time they wanted a different king, someone like Nahash, to square up to Nahash, to go and get Nahash. That's what they're indicted for. That's what they're condemned for. In verses 13 to 15, Samuel therefore calls them to renew their allegiance to God. Here is the king you have chosen, he says, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. See what Samuel's underlining for them? He's saying, you've got what you wanted, you've got your king now, but you have sinned. The Lord has been gracious to deliver you. And from now on, you need to choose who is going to be your king. To whom will you give your wholehearted devotion and allegiance? You and your king. If you obey, good. If you don't, bad. The, the warning is the Lord's hand will be against him. You remember all that episode of what was happening when the ark of God was going through all the Philistine cities? The constant refrain was, the Lord's hand was heavy, weighty on the Philistines. You don't want the Lord's heavy hand on you. It is not good to be under his judgment. Now to make this super clear to them, Samuel does what many prophets do. Indeed, what Jesus himself did. Declaring the truth of the word of God and accompanying it with a sign. You know, he's talking, for example, when the paralytic is lowered through that roof, laid before the feet of Jesus, Jesus says that he has the power to forgive sins as the son of man but so that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins he turns to the man i say to you get up take up your mat and walk the sign accompanies the word the visual aid proves the the verbal truth stated and that's what samuel does here just to show that god's judgment and God's display, it's not some threat just tucked away on some page of scripture that you can just read and go, oh, and skip past it. No, verse 17, he says, I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. But he starts that by saying, hey, uh, it's harvest time, isn't it? Sounds a bit weird. But you're in the middle of lambasting us and Telling us we need to recommit our allegiance to God. Hey, what time is it? Uh, yeah, they're looking around. It's harvest time. It's summer. It's dry. And it's, yeah, it's lovely. And we're going to bring in the harvest. Well, that's why this sign of thunder and rain at harvest time would be so odd. Thunder and rain at harvest time in Israel would be as weird as two feet of snow falling in Tenerife in July. But Samuel prays and, well, there you go. Here comes the thunder. Testimony validated 
by the Lord God himself. Sounds just like what Hannah said in chapter 2. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. What happens? Well, the people come under conviction of sin, verse 19. Gripped by a sudden fear of the Lord. And notice who they plead with. They plead with Samuel, not Saul, to pray to God for them. They're afraid, and they should be. As Hebrews 10, 31 reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the right response to committing evil against a holy God. Now, maybe as we've walked through this, you're thinking, whoa, this is pretty heavy. Uh, maybe you're even coming under conviction of sin in recent days, regarding the way that you're living, who it is you're serving. Maybe even you're coming under conviction now. This, this is how the Lord God makes it known. Through the proclamation of his word. Not necessarily from a person like me, from a pulpit like this, but from other spirit-filled believers speaking the truth of the word of God to each other though it does include preaching. The question is, what do we want to do with that kind of conviction? If we're facing up to the reality, as Israel did on that day, that actually we do have divided allegiances, divided hearts, divided devotion. What are we going to do about that? Because there is ultimately only one king. Now, there are plenty of wrong ways to deal with conviction. You know, some try to wriggle their way out of it. You know, minimizing sin. Ugh, it's not that bad. Blame shift. It's the other person's fault. Or just ignore it. Ugh, it'll go away. But others can feel their guilt so keenly that they feel that they can't draw near to God. They can't come to him. Either he'll reject their com them completely or fry them in his anger. Well, none of those responses are right. That's why we need to look at verses 20 to 25. Having felt the weight of conviction for divided allegiances, etc. In verses 20 to 25, we find the Lord declared to be unbelievably gracious. Despite everything that has happened. Rejecting God as king. Asking for a new king crediting this new king with the deliverance that God himself has given and having a big celebration of it by, by offering sacrifices to the Lord that they're very, very, very displeased. The Lord is still for them. You see how patient and gracious the Lord is with sinners like us? He reassures them that God is still for them and reassures them of their acceptance. You see what it says in verse 20? Having just said all the things that he said, he says, uh, and the people have then prayed, uh, said to Samuel, pray for us to this king. Pray for us to the Lord. For we've added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Verse 20, you don't expect it. Samuel's first reply is, do not be afraid. You expect it to say, 
You should be very afraid. You've done so much evil. That's not what it says. They don't need to be afraid because God is still their father. And Israel is still his firstborn son. Friends of ours were having a very hard time with one of their kids a few years ago. She was very much off the rails and swearing at them and stealing their money and hating God and breaking their hearts. They were fizzing mad at her and the way she was acting. It was very, very unwise to say the least. And that in spite of the great love that she had shown. They had shown her. Now they could have washed their hands of her because of her terrible, terrible behavior. But they didn't. They pursued her. They never gave up. They constantly asked her to stop what she was doing. To turn around and come back. Start living the way that she ought to be living. And she, she did. Because she knew her parents well. They didn't overlook her wrongdoing, but actually the reason she came back was because she was in absolutely no doubt of their love, despite the many times it had been spurned. And I think that's what Samuel is trying to say to Israel. It's not be afraid because you guys are absolutely in for it, but it's don't be afraid. The Lord is unbelievably gracious. Having assured them of that, he then calls for this renewed service, renewed worship. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. That's the, the basis of their sin, the rejection of God as king. They've been idolaters. They've turned to other idols. They've made an idea of monarchy their idol. They believed a human king would be better for them than the living God and Look at verse 22. Here's the hope that people like us place in idols like we form. They'll make your life good. They'll stop your life being bad. It's just not true. They'll do you no good and they cannot rescue you is what Samuel says. That relationship, that bottle, that box set, whatever it is, it is useless to save you from your sins. And then he delivers, he motivates their repentance. The thing that can make them most confident of the Lord's acceptance is God's passion for his own glory. Put your eyes on verse 22. Read it for yourself. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Uh, John Piper has a chapter written on this very verse in one of his books called The Pleasures of God. It's one of my favorites. And he writes this. The basis of God's grace is the love that he has for his own name. The ground of his mercy is his unswerving commitment to preserve and display his glory. Above all things, that is what he will maintain. He will not give that glory to another. He will not allow that glory to diminish. He will uphold his glory, the glory of his name. And he has chosen to glorify his name through us, through choosing us, loving us, sticking with us, not rejecting us, and that not on the basis of any of our human graces, but on the basis of his 
marvelous and unspeakable sovereign grace. What good news that must have been to the ears of the people of God that day. And I pray it's good news to any of you, friends, who are struggling with sin or turning from God to idols for thinking that they're going to do you good and thinking that they're going to save you from something. They won't. Only he can. And he's gracious and receives you. And wonderfully, Samuel himself at the very end promises not to reject them either. Even though they rejected him, he'll faithfully minister to this sinning congregation because the Lord has called him to. That's why he says, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to teach you. That's exactly what leaders should do. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to teach you to fear God, to serve him faithfully and wholeheartedly, to keep on remembering all the great things that God has done. And I'll keep reminding you of them. And to know that actually if you don't repent of this evil, you will perish, you and your tall, dark, and handsome king. And friends, as I close, we would do well to follow Samuel's teaching. For as we follow Christ our king, it is right for us to fear him, for he is holy and he is mighty. Just read some of the passages in Revelation of what happens when his name is spoken when he appears. Everybody's on their face. Holy and reverent fear. Serve him wholeheartedly. It is not a waste of time. Remember what he's done, especially his death, his cross, especially his resurrection, the commission that he has given to the church to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Those simple things recalled day by day, week by week, are the means of honoring him, of keeping ourselves from that great evil of rejecting God and looking for salvation in all the wrong places. That's what Olivia should do for disobeying her parents. That's what Archie should do for going out with a non-Christian. That's what Maya should do for finding her peace and her solace in alcohol. That's what you and I should do for all the moral deficiencies in us that incline us to do what is contrary to the will of God. And with the reassurance of this utterly unbelievable grace, we should do what 1 John 1, 9 tells us we should do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And purify us. words of Jesus in Mark 1.16 must always ring in our ears again and again and again. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Lord and the Lord alone. Is our salvation? Let's pray.
please take a moment in the quietness just to respond in your own way. And then we'll stand and praise his name. Glory be to God the Father, glory be to God the Son, glory be to God the Spirit, the Lord is our 